May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. And so begins the Declaration of Independence. What were then the reasons which compelled these men to declare their independence from Great Britain? The, the reasons for declaring their independence were multitude, but they fell under one heading. That the purpose of government was to secure the equality for all souls, that they might be able to freely pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And what's more, they believed that these rights were inalienable rights, not given by a person or by a government, but by their creator God. And so that when someone sought to usurp or to destroy these inalienable rights, they first had to seek a, a redress, to, to raise their concerns. But when, they, as they said, a history of repeated injuries and usurpations continued to exist, that it was not only their right, but it was their duty to throw off such despotism. Well, that's a lot, but let me tell you what they, what they were trying to say. That the founders of these United States of America made this argument. First of all, they recognized that they were under a legitimate authority, under the king of Great Britain, George III, and that throwing off that form of government and taking upon another might cause as many problems as it solves. What's more, that a human government was only permissible because all governments come from God. And so you should not throw off one government for another for any light or transient reason. But when a single government or a single tyrant so oppresses the people and so usurps the inalienable rights that God has given and, and uh, provided for people, that it was indeed their duty to throw off such despotism. And so was born the United States of America. But this point, remember, this country was not born out of a desire to throw off religion. I know that is common orthodoxy today, that the United States of America was born as an atheistic state. But it is absolutely contrary to everything that we have in the documents. The documents that we have, the reasons that were given for these United States, was not so that we could throw off religion, not so that we could separate government from God. Not so that we could live as a nation of unbelievers. But precisely the opposite. Because the founders of this country believed that God's laws had been usurped by a king. That it was the creator God's design for people to be free to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And so it was not to become an atheistic state. 
Of course, we have quite a bit of cultural amnesia. <laughs> the idea of going back and reading the documents is, is a grand idea, a very novel one, isn't it? But today we're told there's no room. No room for the church in the states. No room for morality and legislation. No room for the laws of nature to prevail over a people. The state is to be a state of godlessness. In fact, they often rally this cry, the separation of church and state, which phrase was taken itself from Thomas Jefferson's letter that he wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association, who had heard that the Congregationalists were about to be made the state religion of the United States. And so he writes to the Danbury Baptist to say, no, that that's not going to happen. And he actually uses this phrase, the separation of church and state, reminding them that the state has no right to get involved in the matters of the church, but not the other way around. And in fact, it has been completely reversed, such that the state has every right, it seems, in our contemporary culture to be involved in the matters of the church, and the church no right to be involved in the matters of the state. There is even quite common um, citation of the First Amendment. The First Amendment guarantees the separation of church and state. But you know, because you've read the document, that the words church and state don't actually appear in the First Amendment. Let me remind you what it says. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The First Amendment limits the power of Congress. <laughs> Congress is the subject Congress shall not infringe upon the life of the people to establish in a religion, not the other way around. What's more, there's a wide gap, a very wide gap, between the idea that the people should uphold some common morality and establishing an official church. John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, was a man who actually saw with his own eyes as a child the Battle of Bunker Hill. And he saw the election of Abraham Lincoln to the presidency. One life, spanning both revolutionary and civil war. John Quincy Adams said this, The highest glory of the American Revolution was this, It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. That was what our sixth president thought was the highest glory of the American Revolution. But alas, that ship has sailed. Those days are gone. That indissoluble bond seems to have been broken. And the greatest fear of modern legislators seems to, legislators seems to be that someone might actually take their religion outside the doors of their parish hall and try to bring it into the public sphere. In the Commonwealth of Kentucky, a couple decades ago, there was a law that guaranteed the hanging of the Ten Commandments in every school building in Kentucky. It, it provided that the, the plaques would be paid for by private funds, but that these would guarantee the protection of these plaques in every school. There was a challenge to this, you know, and it rose all the way through the food chain up to the Supreme Court of the United States, which said that there was a problem. Let me read to you from the decision. Posting of religious texts on the wall serves no educational function, the majority of the Supreme Court wrote. If the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, 
It will be to induce school children to read, meditate upon, perhaps to venerate and obey the commandments. We cannot have that, can we? The worst possible thing that could happen if we hung the Ten Commandments in the walls of our public schools would be that children might actually read and obey them. And so our country, by anybody's definition, I mean, it doesn't matter what political party that you're a part of, what anybody who objectively looks at the culture of our country just two centuries later, would argue that we have removed the idea of natural law, of God's law, from our, our civil government. That we no longer operate under the same premise and principles. That the combination of divine law, what the, the, the founders called natural law, no longer prevails. That the very thing which these men and women and children risk their lives their fortunes, and their sacred honor to protect has gone long out of vogue. And that puts us in a very difficult predicament. What then shall we do? We, being the Christians, what then shall we do, we Christians who are Americans? How do we respond to this cultural move, this cultural defection? How do we respond to it? Well, we should go back to the Bible, right? The lessons appointed for today were not lessons that I just picked arbitrarily. They actually um, were not appointed in 1789. 1928 is when we began appointing lessons to be read on Independence Day. But these lessons were appointed to be read beginning in 1928 with the Book of Common Prayer. And they selected both Deuteronomy passage and the passage from the Sermon on the Mount. John Adams it was who said, my religion is this, it's the religion of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. We have them both today. And so as Christians, I think it hearkens us to look back and say, what do we do? How do we respond? Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you to take away your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go to a mile, go with him too. Give to him who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus lived in a world that was much more hostile to his faith than the one we live in today. He lived in a world where, as an indigenous Jew living in Israel... His country was occupied by Romans, by pagans, who could use physical abuse, slap someone for no reason. Roman soldiers could physically abuse a Jew with no sort of uh, retribution. They could confiscate personal property. They could conscript labor. And so here's Jesus' way of responding. Here's what he tells his Fellow patriots, you want to respond to physical abuse, to confiscation of your property, to conscripted labor? Do this. Turn the other cheek and let them hit that one too. When they take away some of your stuff, give them things they didn't ask for. When they require you to work, work harder than they ever thought that you could. 
Here's Jesus' answer to a culture that is oppressive to religion. Here's what he says. When they are oppressive, you live generously. Give away your stuff. Give away your fortune. Give away your love and give it generously. Heap coals of fire upon their heads by your kindness, by your gentleness. Love your neighbor. You've heard this one, right? But he goes further, doesn't he? What does he say? Love your enemy. No. You must be wrong, Lord. You you apparently are confused. That's not what you mean. It's exactly what he says. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, this is where it hurts. You know, <laughs> This is where it, you know, it kind of gets so close that you kind of want to pull your feet back a little bit, lest that someone step on your toes right here, right? Love your friends, love your neighbors, love your family. Love your enemies. You know, it's hard for me, I don't know about you, it's hard for me to love people that I have spent a lifetime cultivating hate against, you know? If I meet somebody new, like at a restaurant or, you know, in the supermarket or somewhere, and we're striking up a chat, and they tell me that they're from Ann Arbor, Michigan, all you Ohio State fans right away know what I'm talking about, right? I groan inside, you know? Oh, and I, I often say to them, and I so liked you for a moment, you know? I've spent a lifetime commiserating with many of you on Sunday afternoons, watching my Cleveland Browns break my heart week after week after week. I refuse in anything in my wardrobe to wear black and gold. Oh, you Pittsburgh people got that one, didn't you? I don't care. If it was a liturgical vestment, I would be an obstinance to the church, you know? It's not going to happen. And maybe it's okay in sports. Maybe it's okay in sports to hate your enemy. But Jesus says, not so in life. It's inappropriate for people who call themselves Christians. Love your enemies. Maybe you know uh, Bill Moyers, the the anchor for PBS and NBC and other stations he's been on. Maybe you know that he served as the press secretary in the 60s under President Lyndon Johnson. Bill Moyers uh, was often called by um, President Johnson my own personal Baptist preacher because Bill Moyers was known for personal piety, although, just as an aside, he wasn't a Baptist. President Johnson liked to make fun of him by calling him my own personal Baptist preacher. But it was often the case that at state dinners and other functions that President Johnson, out of a sense of decorum, and I think as much to make fun of Bill Moyers, would call on him to say grace at a meal. But Moyers never refused. He always consented to the president's request and always offered up prayers for the food, no matter what the company was around him. On one occasion, uh, President Johnson does exactly that. He says, Bill, offer grace for us. And Bill Moyers began to pray, and he had just said a few words, and President Johnson, without lifting up his head, said, Louder, Bill, I can't hear you. Moyers didn't even lift his head. He simply said, I wasn't talking to you, Mr. President. (laughs) We can get so distracted. 
We can get so distracted in this world by all the negativity and the hostility and the vortex of negativity that exists that just sucks us in and pits us against one another and makes us inside loathe human beings. But if Jesus could love a Roman soldier and insist that those who followed him would do the same, how much, we, how much more we who follow him today under far less strenuous circumstances? Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who would do evil to you. That is not just what we're called to do. That is our duty. And do it we shall. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.